0: to the More Than A Game podcast, a podcast, all about basketball, but it's also a lot more than that as well, hence the name More Than A Game. We're going to cover such things as leadership and leadership within sporting organizations, life in general. We're going to cover a myriad of things through each of these podcast episodes, and today we have veteran MBL administrator and general manager Jeff Van Groningen with us. Jeff,
1: welcome to the More Than The Game podcast. Thanks for having me, Dan. It's a privilege to be here on one of your uh, your early runs on this thing, so it's great.
0: Absolutely. We'll see how we go, hey? Glad you, could, glad you could join us, mate. Um, as I said in the intro, you've had a you know, big history, a long history in the NBL as a sports administrator, general manager, Um, you were I I, I hear the youngest assistant coach in NBL history is that still the case with Geelong back in the day
1: well I know at the time that they they talked a bit about that I was 23 uh, when I was named as a full-time assistant coach I I don't know if too many younger guys have been around it I'm I'm sure some intern coaches are often younger than that nowadays Mm -hmm. but I think at the time it was um, considered to be very young to make a start in coaching uh, in a full-time capacity and um, it was a unique way to, um, to start. We had a very uh, veteran-laden team too with Cecil Exum and Ray Borner and some guys that were wow. every bit of 10 years or 12 years older than, than me. So um, it, was, yeah. it was a thrown-into-the-fire type situation. But, yes, I was very young at the time.
0: Fantastic. So from there, you became a general manager at the Melbourne Tigers and then Brisbane Bullets had a couple of well, stints at the Sydney Kings and now with the Adelaide 36ers. Been a fun ride, no doubt, up until this point. Um, but if we can sort of rewind the tape a little bit, uh, how did you actually get started in the sport of basketball?
1: Well, like so many, I guess, you know, playing as a, as a young kid it was, is where it starts for most of us. I, I had a passion for the game that's probably shared by many. It's not an overly unique story, I think, for those that end up, <coughs> excuse me, in professional basketball in some capacity that you usually start off like, you know, like most of us, just shooting baskets, playing junior games. And my late brother, who was 10 years older than me, was a very good basketball player. And I, I started playing with him. And um, we had come out to Australia as an American family. And um, my heroes, the, the, the posters on my wall, uh, was all about the Lakers and coming out of California and and going back to see relatives on a regular basis. I was always quite fixated on the NBA long before the NBA was anything really known here mm. in Australia. And, and and I was in um, Australian rules football heartland in country Victoria, an hour, hour and a bit out of Melbourne. And um, but I had this huge passion for basketball as well as enjoying uh, footy and cricket and all those things that you grow up with in Victoria. Mm. Um, but I guess I was a bit different because I was really, really fixated on the NBA, and, and and again, this was well before the the Jordan years, when I think most of the country got a bit enveloped in this. You know, my my heroes were um, Pat Riley, um, they, you know, all the way back Kareem Abdul Jabbar. The the Showtime era mm. at the Lakers um, was was influential in in capturing my imagination. And back then, Dan, believe it or not, there was no. Uh, ESPN, there was no Foxtel, yeah. there was no ways of keeping up with these games except really two ways. Um, Sports Illustrated uh, and yeah. Street and Smiths basketball and things that you'd find on big, newspaper, big newsstand shelves but they were usually three or four months old. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. And,
1: and, then, and then a couple of video services that used to send NBA games out to Australia and you'd get these games that were literally two or three months old. And you'd pour through them and you'd, you'd, you'd envelop yourself in this NBA vision that you'd see mm. of what were essentially just regular season NBA games and you'd just watch them over and over and over again. And I can still remember specific games that I would watch 10, 15, 20 times because you couldn't afford to buy, you know, 82 games.
0: Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. You'd
1: watch, you'd watch one game 20 times.
0: Yeah, I remember those days. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely and so those those were different days and I'd watch with my friends and some of my um, closest friends in particular a guy named Nick Ford who went on to become a really good basketball player and played at what we now call NBL one level and now coaches at that level hmm. um, was w- would would share that with me and we'd huddle around these TVs and watch watch these games and to think of it now when when you have streaming and KO and hmm. constant live games wow. it, it's hard to imagine for the for the younger generation that you couldn't just watch a live game, but you couldn't back then. But I was lucky mm. because I would be able to go back to California and see my relatives and my brother and I would be able to go to NBA games yeah. and also NCAA college games. Yeah. So I was really fortunate that I was exposed to it. And and look, it gives a, it, it, it builds within you a passion for the sport that you love. Mm. Yeah. And that's, I guess, how it really started. And And later on, much later on, as I, um, entered university in Victoria, I had started a, a basketball clinic company and I was really fortunate because I had um, become friends with Andrew Gaze, uh, Daryl McDonald, guys like Bruce Bolden, Leonard Copeland, um, I- even Shane Heal back then was very active in the clinics and camps, Brett yeah. Brown. Uh, there was a whole lot of people that um, I was fortunate enough to get to know mm. and were very giving of their time. And, and it was commercial, but, it, but but really it was more than commercial. It was really just hoping that th- those guys would come and share what you were trying to do. And I and I took basketball clinics to places that normally didn't have them. Um, it, it, well, when I say that, normally didn't have exposure to those those guys. So mm. I'd go to places that were three and four hours away from Melbourne. Mm. Uh, and I'd take Lenard and I'd take Daryl and I'd take Bruce and those guys. And and, and Andrew and, and we do these camps and clinics and that's a long long time ago uh, now and, and and but looking back on it I think that was a, a bit of a, a pivotal moment because you'd learn how to administrate those camps, get to know the players, run things to a schedule, do some coaching but also run things as a bit of a business and that's how I started in the professional basketball scene and that, that was my start.
0: Fantastic, you mentioned Andrew Gaze and some of those players from the Melbourne Tigers and I spent a lot of time at the Melbourne Tigers. Um, for me, one of the, um, the biggest clubs in NBL history. as um, second probably to the Perth Wildcats in terms of success, in my opinion. Um, but, yeah, you started your career there as, um, in administration as, as a general manager. Uh, what were some of the things or the key, um, uh, I guess, um, key things that you learnt in your time there that you were able to take into your career um, after and even now?
2: Well, actually, just, just a
1: slight correction there, and, and because you like your history, I actually came into the Melbourne Tigers as not the general manager. I came in as the marketing director oh, right. and was learning under Grant Caddy. So, Grant, I owe yep. a lot to Grant. Grant was actually the CEO of the Melbourne Tigers, and he brought me in as mm. a employee yep. with the vision of um, uh, teaching me, help me understand about administration of a basketball club. Um, Grant's the best in the business. Mm. Uh, he had made a transition from being um, a player agent to an administrator, although he did retain his overseas clients at, at the time. Mm. And Grant uh, brought me in. So I, I wasn't initially in charge at the Tigers as a general manager. I, I worked for Grant. But it wasn't very long before Grant and Brett Brown actually headed to Sydney together to the Sydney King. So, ironically enough, It was Mm. someone going to the Sydney Kings, where I went years later, that opened up my first general manager job and Grant departed and the board at the Tigers inserted me in as a general manager at the club. Mm. And and it was an easy transition for me because I I greatly respected Lindsay Gaze. Andrew Gaze was obviously playing. I knew Lenard and Mark Bradkey and Warwick Giddy and the people that played there very, very well from Mm. the other activities that I had done with them and the other, you know history that i had shared with many of those guys but following grant taking the king's job it opened the door for me to take the tigers job Mm. in in terms of what i learned there at the tigers i learned everything because it was a transition period of time the game had um, risen to some amazing heights Mm. during the 90s and then it was a a period in the late 90s early 2000s where there was a consolidation there were some teams Exiting the league and not being able to compete anymore like my old team at the at, at Geelong Supercats They had passed by and they weren't in the league anymore Newcastle fell by the wayside the Gold mm. Coast the mm. first iteration of the Gold Coast Hobart And so the league was undergoing a consolidation period and the Tigers were considered as you said To be really the standard bearers of the league them and mm. the, and, and Perth for sure And I think Adelaide was a real mainstay by then too mm. But it was a period of time that that the game was contracting a bit, I think it's fair to say. And I was in the seat of the Tigers when, for example, we had to look at whether we could really afford to play at Rod Laver Arena anymore, now known as as Melbourne Arena. Um, I had to uh, work with the board on that. And and eventually a decision was made to move to the much smaller venue that the Tigers then played at at a later stage there at the um, State Netball and Hockey Centre. So I learned a lot about... Um, the economics of the game and and where that sits and I didn't have to do a lot of recruiting because the team was
2: Mm, (laughs) the team was pretty much the
1: team it it stayed basically the team for many many years they Mm. had their core players and so I didn't have to do a lot of that but I learned a great deal and some of the sayings that that I picked up from Lindsay about the game are are sayings that I I use even today about player recruitment um, and some of the knowledge that I some I say some because it's almost impossible to gain the knowledge uh, that Lindsay has within his fibre. Mm. But you try to you gather as much of that as you can. And obviously from guys like Andrew and Bradkey and, and, and Copeland that were around for so long, Giddy as well. So no, it was it was a learning period for me and it opened mm. up doors for me that, that followed after the Melbourne Tigers.
0: Absolutely. Oh, that's great to hear, mate. And you mentioned Andrew and Lindsay Gaze. Uh, good friends of yours, obviously. Um Great relationship with the two of them there. What was it like being part of that environment? Um, two of the one of the best coaches in NBL history, one the one of the best or the best players in NBL history, and Andrew Gaze. Um, yeah, what was that like being a part of that organization, being around them twenty four seven, and and just seeing the passion and the commitment they had for the game?
1: I think just humbling is is the word that comes to mind because if you if you are put in a position where in any way you can be contributing to that or occasionally they ask a question (laughs) about basketball matters by Lindsay gaze or andrew then 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 it's a tremendous uh, humbling experience but as i said to be honest uh, there wasn't a lot of that uh to do because you know the 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 team was very much in place i did have a little bit to do with um one of the recruits that grant caddy brought in who remains a very close friend to this day which is phil handy who's now at the lakers mm-hmm. and I, I i was able to help with the with phil as he transitioned into the tigers and that That's was nice. a that was a big learning experience for me because you were bringing a a totally different scenario to a team that basically hadn't had an import guard at that other than Leonard for a long time mm-hmm. and so um that that was a good experience for me and i think you know phil coming in was a was a good thing he went on and played at the um at the Razorbacks after that, yep. but that was a good period. I, I also had a fair bit to do with Daryl Corletto to, to help bring um, essentially a young fellow into that program. I, mm. When I was in the seat of the Tigers, I signed Corletto into the Tigers and he had been around the program as a, basically a development program. But I, mm. and I go back a long way with, with Daryl because of that. And Daryl, um, later played for me uh, in my state league coaching at at Werribee and in the VBL and Daryl was a great young talent at that stage and had a a great you know long career in the NBL so I did have a chance to contribute a little bit but essentially you know you don't need to do a lot when when Lindsay Gaze is is there from a basketball perspective he Mm. he he ran the show and rightly so Uh, but I learned a lot from from them and it was a humbling experience but the thing about the the Gaze family, um, Andrew and Lindsay, but also Mrs. Gaze and Janet and all and all of them, and now their kids, is they're they're just tremendous people. And I think the main thing I learned is that if you can surround yourself in a basketball club with good people, you go a long way towards that that magical word that everybody kicks around, which is culture. Yeah. Um, and you, you really, that's just another way of saying people, in my opinion. It, mm. it, culture is people, and. So I, I learned a great deal. And as I said earlier, had it not been for uh, Grant inviting me in there and Andrew and Lindsay accept, accepting me so well, um, I wouldn't have had the opportunities later that came about at other clubs, in, including the next one, which was Brisbane.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We'll come to Brisbane in just a moment. But just to touch on, just to stay in that era of the 90s for a moment, there's been a lot of talk of the NBL now and how it's, you know, it's come back to those you know, great days in the 90s or even better than then better than those days. What are your thoughts as to the state of the league now, the position it's in? Is it bigger and better than it was back in the 90s in those great days or has it still got a bit of work to do before we get back to uh, that, that time?
2: Well,
1: I, I don't want to be a fence sitter uh, because it's difficult and that's not what, what the question's about. But mm. it is difficult at any point to, um, to really measure off eras because you don't have the, own, you don't have the ability of playing them at the same time, and that, that, that's that's the nature sure. of it. And you right. know that's why the LeBron Le, LeBron Jordan debate is 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 meaningless because you can't put them next mm. to each other in their prime. You can't put a 25 year old LeBron and 25 year old Jordan next to each other, and yeah. and likewise you can't put a 2020 version of our league next to the the uh, year 2000 version of our league mm. with any level of science. So you have to go on your memories, which can be flawed. The recency effect is a big thing. I'm a huge believer in the recency effect. That is to say that you remember a little bit more about what you're seeing in front of you right now than maybe you did 20 years ago. And then Mm. countering that is the kind of absence makes the heart grow fonder effect where you you tend to gloss over any problems that that a league has or a team had when Mm. it's 20 or 30 years down the line. So, Mm. you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of things to do with you know, in, in your mind that that play tricks on you when you try to compare eras. Yeah. But what I do believe is that where we're at now in 2020 is is a, a, a damn sight along the path, way, way, way more positive than we were, say, 10 years ago. I and think. I think with what Larry Kesselman and, and, and Jeremy Lowe and his team have done is they've actually brought basketball back to a level of prominence that it didn't have for a very long time. Mm. um is it is it the same as as that era i I don't know i'm a huge believer that you fall in love the hardest the first time Mm. and i think that when australian sport um, followers fell in love with basketball the first time they fell pretty hard Mm. they felt they fell pretty deeply in love with the product and i think Mm. in melbourne where i was or victoria at one point you had the Geelong Supercats, the Eastside Spectres, the Melbourne Tigers, the North Melbourne Giants, uh, you know, all playing at, on a regular basis down at um, that Melbourne Olympic Park precinct. And, then, yeah. and I remember very distinctly one evening. It's just one evening that always stands out where I was with the Supercats as an assistant coach. We played the Giants in the old Glasshouse, House, which is now obviously the Collingwood Football Club training facility. Mm. And we, we played in the Glasshouse House before a packed house. I believe Bruce Palmer was coaching the Giants. Mm. Across the road, Melbourne was playing either Eastside or they may have become the Magic by then. I can't remember, but they were playing the Gorgian-led team Mm. during that era when the Gays-Gorgian rivalry and the Tigers-Magic rivalry was massive. And they had a full house. And on the same night, at the same time,
0: Mm. Collingwood
1: was playing Carlton yeah. at the MCG, which was only another 200 metres over the bridge or 300 metres over the bridge, and they had a full house. And I remember thinking, if Melbourne's not the sporting capital of the world tonight, <laughs> yes. I don't really know <laughs> what, what was. And yeah. and I think, you know, I think that was a very heady era. And I think mm. I inadvertently hit one note there, which is that the game was played in the winter at that point.
2: Yeah, that's right.
1: And I think in terms of being able to get... Uh, Fringe NBA-level imports, it's one thing that's overlooked is that you could get imports back at that stage of our NBL's history Mm. without the imports believing they were closing the door for that season on the NBA because they didn't have to make that decision. They didn't have to say, am I hanging around in the G League, what we now call the G League? Am I hanging around there to be one heartbeat away from the NBA Mm. or am I coming to Australia? That's what they have to decide now. Yeah. But back then, they didn't have to decide that because we were the only big league at that time of year in the world because of our Southern Hemisphere um, location. We yeah. played in our winter, which was everyone else's summer. And if you mm. look at you look at even this to this day, wh- what really happens in the summer? Okay, you've got NBA Summer League, which goes for 10 days. You've got a league in Puerto Rico, which goes for a month mm. or five, five weeks maybe other than that there is no other league so we did have the advantage of owning the basketball landscape globally at that point mm. which i think did have an impact on recruiting and being able to get some players in and that's why some pretty high level guys came they stayed for different reasons guys like leroy and cal and those yeah. guys but they came because they didn't have to shut their door on anything back in the states that's my sort of take on it so that mm. is a factor that i think is is little talked about mm. but there were there were reasons for the league to shift to summer when they did and mm. there's been reasons for them not to shift back to winter mm. um which they have not done but that is a difference between the eras mm. and in, in answer to your, your initial question i think it's hard to separate where we are uh now from where we were at the, at the zenith of, mm. of that point in time but what has changed is there is a great deal more competition now even in the summer with a league soccer with the way the AFL and the and cricket and everything else has extended their seasons. All mm-hmm. of the major sports in Australia, whether you're talking rugby league, whether you're talking AFL, whether you're talking cricket, they've all started to creep into other areas of the calendar that they, they never used to creep. That's right. nobody, nobody in the AFL or VFL back then even dreamt of playing uh, something in, say, February like they do now with the NAB Cup. They didn't even dream of that. Mm. So it is a more competitive environment. So you could make the argument that for the NBL to be a viable and relevant product, which they certainly are, Mm. in this day and age is harder than what it was in that day and age. So that's probably the biggest difference. But I'd say the eras are really, really hard to compare. Both really great eras.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully, we continue to move forward even through this pandemic and all that's been going on in the world. But... Uh, you did mention about um, 10 years ago in the state of the league, even 10 years ago, it's amazing to think. You know, I remember the uh, Sydney Spirit at the time getting about 8, 900 to the entertainment centre uh, to watch a game, which was for me probably the lowest point in the league's history. But um, I, rem- I remember talking to Jason Smith, uh, the famous Jason Smith back in the day, and um, talking to him about why he thought the league declined so much in the really was only probably five, maybe 10 years, five, 10-year period. And you mentioned about the ownership coming in and owners coming in more to um, you know, uh, get a dollar out of the league as opposed to their interest being about basketball and the sport in Australia. So I guess as the league grows, how do we counteract ownership coming in or owners coming in to, to make money out of the league as opposed to having the best interests at the, of the sport at heart?
2: Well,
1: you know, I think we're really lucky that that most owners have that understanding. And, and to be really honest, very few owners make any big money out of out of this league. Mm. So there may have been a period, as Jason said, that some owners came in with that intent.
2: Mm.
1: But it's pretty widely accepted that most owners have got to come in with a longer term view, doing the right thing by the sport, building their brand and doing everything right to have any real notion of 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 making it a sustainable financial product and they Mm. and it can be done and if you look at Perth they've done it and if you look at New Zealand at different stages they've done it and and most clubs have done it at some point in time Adelaide's Mm. done it in the past but but it's such a competitive environment and there's so many pitfalls if you don't get things right with the way you run your clubs and this has been the case for decades that it is difficult to turn a dollar unless you're, you, you know, you really get things right. So, so I believe that that most, if not all, of the owners in our league now actually have the right intent, and they believe that they're there to, to try to make the sport better, work within mm. the NBL, and 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 make this thing collectively work. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I, I think the only way you 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 know you really do what you're saying which is to to do the right thing by the sport is Mm. get the right people and Mm. and you know the right people is the is the right answer and i think there's been some really positive moves in the last few years i think kevin martin coming in to own the Mm. brisbane bullets brings a lot of credibility i think that there's um you know an ownership uh, around the league collectively now that 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 tends to really want to build this product into a great thing Mm. um and hopefully it, it, it holds us in good stead in the future. And I think the league's ownership with Larry, again, I've mentioned him once or twice already, but it's huge because, um, yeah. he sets the tone. Um, he, he has shown his passion by putting his money where his mouth was. He came in as a sponsor at the Melbourne Tigers initially, mm,
2: that's right,
1: And then he became an owner of the Tigers. Then he became the owner of the Tigers. Uh, or, or I could have that wrong. You might've skipped from being a sponsor to full owner. I can't remember, but he bought the team and, and in the end he was the owner and, and, uh, and then, to, to go and actually then take the step from there to own the league at mm-hmm. a time that the league was not not looking great um, it was a huge um, boost for the league. In fact, it's 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 hard to it's hard to actually quantify how big that was for the league. I think it was a difference maker between the league possibly not being there or going into some other lesser form, which would yeah. have been tragic for the NBL to lose all of what it had built. And he ensured yeah. it didn't, and he's mm-hmm. now ensured that it's gone somewhere from there so i think when you've got an owner of the league who's that committed then hopefully the other owners of the teams follow suit and say well we might not agree on everything all the time but we've got an owner of the league that is really really steadfast in his approach to to, to make this league you know great so mm. i i think most owners are thinking that way about their teams respectively as well
0: yeah absolutely Yeah, it's great that he's come on board. I remember Jason saying as well back then that the league needs someone like a Frank Lowy character, like the A-League took off because of Frank Lowy. The league needed someone like that to come in, and they did. So thank goodness for that. But let's change gears to Brisbane um, because you spent a number of years up there as well. I know you live in Brisbane. It's close to your heart, the Brisbane Bullets. So I just want to take you back to when you first came in. It was a bit of a rebuilding phase from memory. And over the years, you built what I would think well, I, in my opinion, is the greatest ever roster to be grace and NBL court. Here's some of the names: Sam McKinnon, Mark Bradkey, CJ Bruton, Ebira, Stephen Black. Like, that's a roster right there. How do you fit them all under the salary cap for starters? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, that's the that's the
1: question that everybody wanted to ask. I mean, that's right. to to be really honest, we we actually had a situation where we had so many sponsors around the <clears throat> the edge of our program mm. that that the owner eddie groves had very very substantial business and personal links with and it it built a really strong network of businesses around that club Mm. and um nobody nobody would choose to believe it but believe it or not in terms of what we paid for basketball salary we were able to fit it under the cap what we paid through businesses and what we were able to do on the outside of the club which was which was Cleared by the NBL because they were Mm. legitimate jobs. I'll give you a real-life example. Mm. Stephen Black went off and worked for Rick Petterwood at at hoop to hoop which is Mm. a basketball uniform manufacturing company. And this was not a a fake job. This was a job where he went into that place and worked three days a week, if my memory serves me correctly, was out on the road um, demonstrating to the possible clients at the associations what these uniforms look like, how this could work, how this was good for them. And Steve took that with both hands and actually got paid by mm-hmm. hoop to hoop to do that job and we mm-hmm. replicated that right across the board and a lot of people have have never really bothered to find out how that actually occurred now those in the NRL are called third party deals That's mm-hmm. that's you know that 's what we call them in the NRL and I had a chance to work at the Broncos uh, a few years back now and mm-hmm. and saw that at close hand and there's mm-hmm often debate about you know how close those third party deals are to clubs and that type of thing but but it is a a system that sponsors can actually become involved in and that's how we were able to get a number of our players to actually have an involvement in brisbane outside of just being paid to play basketball the -hmm. other the other thing that we were very very i guess that was very advantageous for us is because strength builds strength in rosters and and again if you look in the NBA. There are players that actually come to NBA clubs, as much as nobody seems to believe it here in the NBL. But in the NBA, nobody actually has, blinks an eyelid. When, I think back to David West when he went to the Spurs and he turned down an $11 million deal at Indiana and went to the Spurs and played for the minimum at the time, which was 1.2 as the minimum exception. He left $10 million on the table. Sometimes players actually decide to go where they, where they want to go and and you look at the Bulls teams. You look like a you look at a guy like Ron Harper. What he did there, mm. turned down other big deals. Uh, you look at the Golden State Warriors, just accumulating pieces during their run. And yeah. I could go on and on. And 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 we actually did um, have the advantage of a number of players, including Mark Bradke, mm. who came to us for for well under what we thought we would have to pay them. Mm. And we also were ad- advantaged by guys that went on to become great stars. Adam Gibson is, is, yeah. is an example. But he was, he, Adam Gibson was paid well under at the Bullets because he was starting out his journey and he was on a, a, a veteran roster that was well-advanced in age from, from Gibbo and also well-advanced in what their salary expectations were. And he played a longer game, came in as a rookie, did a great job, um, was part of great days. Uh, and and no doubt, I, I'm assuming, you know, has received good paydays later. But in terms mm. of our payday to a guy like Gibbo, to a guy like Brad Williamson, to a guy like Dusty Reichardt, mm. we actually had a very big, vast divide between the higher paid players and the lower paid players at the time. Mm. So our so our total um, spend may not have been quite as much as everybody assumed. But yes, we did have big ticket items, you know, CJ, Ebby Arras, Sammy McKinnon, even Dylan Boucher to get him across mm. from Perth, we yeah. had to obviously make payments, but we, we, were, we were just in a really advantageous position because of how much interest there was in our Bullets team and how much business connectivity we had from our team. And I, look, I think, you know, you mentioned Jason earlier. The other big mm. team that was, I think, very similar at the time was the Kings. Yeah. And right. if you look at what was happening at the Kings, now Jason would be able to tell you much more because he was close with those people. But my understanding is that people like the Macquarie Bank Mm. You know the guys at the Macquarie Bank that were owners of that team. I believe we're doing really similar things to what Eddie was in terms of saying, mm. "Well, what's our business network? How can we get some of our guys involved in in learning genuine skills?" And I think it is genuine, and I think yeah. to do that is a mm. smart thing. So that's how we did it at the Bullets. But that was only the last couple of years. the The, the first four or five years was pretty. We were successful. Mm. But but there was you know there was not a huge spend on on those years compared to those last you know few years including the year we won it and and, and I agree with you I'm biased but I think that was the greatest roster that uh, was put together um, I think Joey Wright was in um, was amazingly um, good for that team mm. I think he, he he read that team as well as any coach has ever read a team before he had them humming and it was a great period to be part of.
0: Absolutely. You mentioned Joe, right? And this is a question I had later on, but we'll come to it now about about coaching and um, the importance of, um, first and foremost, I guess, um, vision and purpose within your organization. I think for any great organization, you need to have a clear vision of where you want to head and purpose as to why you exist. And um, I guess part of that puzzle piece is getting the right coach for the team. So you can have a team full of stars and we've seen that with the Bulls in the Last Dance documentary recently, you can have all the stars that you want, but if you don't have that key coach that can bring them together, that can sell that vision and that purpose, um, you're not going to really end up where you want to go. So first and foremost, uh, for you, what's the how important is having the clear vision and purpose for your organisation, but also um, the importance of getting the right coach, uh, well, the right fit um, in terms of the coach?
1: Well, not surprisingly, the vision and purpose of the organisation usually starts at the owner. Um, and, and it doesn't mean the owner has to be day-to-day engaged um, in your basketball decisions or day-to-day engaged in in running the business decisions, but it does mean that he tends, he or she tends to key off what follows. And it's, it's it, you know, the snake is always led by the head. And, mm-hmm. and when you can be led that, you know, by the head very, very well, Mm. You you move along really nicely and re- really quickly, and when you can't, it's different. And I think that I'm a, I've always been a big believer, for example, that you shouldn't have too many owners because I think too many masters can be hard to answer to.
0: Yeah. And I
1: and I note with interest that places like Perth very rarely have had a large amount of owners. They've yeah. had dual owners or sometimes three or four owners, I think, from memory. But but there's almost always been just a majority owner, mm. and I think that. The vision and purpose is best, um, I guess, accomplished when you have a pretty clear
2: ownership vision. Mm. So that's the first thing.
1: And, and I think that, um, you know, coaching is, to, in my opinion, a, a right place, right time thing for the group. Mm. I think that uh, you do have to find the, the, the right fit. And I think coaches are, are such a unique group of people and, I find that in today's day and age, most of the coaching knowledge is pretty much on a par. I mean, some guys are incredibly gifted in terms of their their study of the game and and, and their take on the game. But by and large, most coaches have a really good knowledge of what they're doing. Mm But the man management aspect is what it's all about because you're dealing with rosters of, in our case, 10 or 11 players plus maybe four or five off to the side, you know, development players and training players. It's not a, it's not a big group of people, but there's a, a vast, um, I guess, uh, a vast difference in, 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 in egos, in personalities, you know, in types, in expectations from the players' end. And a man manager has to, you know, really have an understanding of all of those things and pull that together into a common direction. And that's not—that's not revolutionary to say that, but actually to do it is a different matter, and to do it really effectively. So I think man management is 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 really the key, and I think that um, it just varies according to the group needs that 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 you have. Um, so I think the ownership sets the vision and passion for the organization i think the coach and the general manager have to try to execute that Mm. and if you get all those things aligned you you have success and and success is measured in many different ways championship success is a certain type of success Mm. but the reputation of your organization is another one that's important and sometimes that takes a hit when things go go wrong or you know there's a there's a there's a period of time that most organisations go through where you have to recalibrate things and get back on track and most organisations have that. I mean, when I came into Brisbane, for example, Brisbane was undergoing a really, really big transition from uh, from a period where they'd been ultra successful through the 80s and early 90s and really into the sort of uh, almost mid-90s mm-hmm. and then a period of real wilderness from like 95, 96 all the way through until 2001 to... Um, when, when we came in. And so at the time, it was what was needed most in Brisbane was steadiness and mm. um, a rebuild and uh, to give the, the fans and the, and the media there and the observers of the club to give them a sense that, okay, they have a plan and they're back on track. And, yeah, every, every team goes through that at some point and um, that, that's, that's when you need the people to, um, to, to, to really help you on that build.
0: Absolutely. I guess that translates into life in general. If we don't have a clear purpose for life or direction, then when hardship hits or hardship that we're in at the moment, it's hard to navigate through that without that sense of purpose, whether that's, you know, I I exist to be a good father or a good husband. It gives you that sense of purpose to get through the hard times and particularly from a sporting organisation point of view, as you mentioned. So um, just moving into um, uh, hard times in your life, Uh, one of those uh, was when you lost your older brother, John, And uh, for me, um, being involved with Sports Chaplaincy Australia, I've heard what a great guy he was. And talking about vision, he was a visionary very much so from what I understand. And, um, yeah, from very much from um, working with Indigenous uh, Australians point of view, but also for chaplaincy um, within the sport of basketball, he also worked with uh, the Western Bulldogs. Um, First and foremost, can you share a bit about John as a person and um, obviously I didn't get the meeting but I've heard from people who did what a great person he was a great visionary as I said um, yeah reaching out to the indigenous Australians and yeah can you share with everyone um, what kind of person John was
2: yeah well
1: absolutely it'd be a pleasure uh, it, we'd need a separate podcast to try to um, <laughs> no to try to list his uh, his achievements as a person because mm. he was um, you know incredibly Unique and, mm. uh, and and very rare. Um, but John um, was a qualified pilot. Um, a pilot, he got he got his aviation training in the United States, and initially it looked like he might go down that path. But his flying took him to the Northern Territory, where he took a job um, with a a, a missionary uh, outfit that basically flew missions in and out of some of the most remote parts of Australia. Mm. And so he, he fell in love through that initial job that he had with the airline with the air you know the air company that he was with. he fell in love with the Northern Territory mm. and he fell in love with the people and he had a passion for um, the potential of, of doing something um, that might contribute to to them and he felt very heavily contributed to by them mm. as, a, as, a, as a population, just everybody, just all Territorians, indigenous, non-indigenous, just felt like that was an amazing place, and it, it very much captured him as a person and so so once he was uh, married to to jennifer and 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 kids came along and so forth he he realized he couldn't live in the in the remotest parts of the outback anymore, which he had done by the way uh, yeah. when he was a, a single man he, he, mm. he well, he'd lived halfway between um Darwin and Alice springs, and I can tell you I've been up there a number of times. With him, and halfway between Alice Springs and Darwin, there's not a lot there. It's the Tanami Desert, and it's it's really remote. Mm. And he lived there, and uh, but but having a family coming and, and, and married and so forth, he he then was back in Victoria, but wanted to stay connected and wanted to do something, and he started um, uh, an outfit that eventually became Red Dust Role Models. Mm. Red Dust Role Models, of which Jason Smith, who you mentioned, and Darren Smith, and mm. Many, many um, people contributed to that. Chris Anstey, mm. um, he, he had V8 supercar drivers, he had AFL uh, people, he had Eddie McGuire travel with him to, right. to, to Alice Springs on an occasion or two. Luke Darcy was heavily involved. There was many people from many walks of life and especially in the sporting area that wanted to have a better understanding of this passion that John had to take role models into the most remote, remote parts of Australia. Mm. Um, give a positive, um, life-changing message um, of hope, um, do great humanitarian things at the same time, but really just be there to do things that could help those communities because he felt like those communities didn't have what we we have here Mm. in in, uh, the east coast of Australia and the more densely populated parts of this country. Mm. So he did have an incredible passion. He had always had chaplaincy jobs. Um, he worked as a sports chaplain under Brian Gorgian at, at Gorgian's teams back at the Supercats days, even before I was at the Supercats. In fact, we didn't. he wasn't there at the same time as I was, but he had worked at the Supercats. He worked at, the, as you said, the Western Bulldogs and many other places along the way that he contributed to in the area of sports chaplaincy, which with which, which, which John's approach was not about uh, talking. It was more about living. It was more about... Um, uh, being, a, um, are you there, mate? Someone just tried yep. to make a call. Really <laughs> uh, so yep. Maybe you can just edit that bit out. Um, <laughs> but, is. but, uh, uh, yeah, it was, it was much to do with, uh, living by example and just trying to be there for the athletes that, that mm-hmm. he had a passion for. So his, his main two passions in terms of, um, day to day, outside of his family were, uh, indigenous, um, population of of this country and wanting to do something positive in that respect Mm. and athletes because he had a real affinity for the challenges that they go through and unbeknownst to a lot of people in in day-to-day life athletes go through some challenges that are very unique to Mm. athletes Mm. and there are some dark periods of time um the thing we think of most is when they retire Mm. but there's some very dark periods of time when things don't go your way uh, you might be dropped from selection for your team. You might not make it. You might have had a bad game. Um, you're commented on, especially in this day and age, you're commented mm. on heavily by the media, social media. You're heavily scrutinised. Yeah. And so um, John, you know, always had a, a, a really strong passion to try to help those that um, that he could in, in, in the area of professional athletics as well. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a little bit about him. Um, mm. He was unfortunately... Um, called away from us uh, far too early in our opinion, mm. but there, there, there was another plan there that we're not aware of mm. um, and we lost him a number of years ago, but um, it was a, it was an amazing contribution that um, that he made and one that is quite daunting to try to uh, live up to from a human stand standpoint, but mm. um, some people are incredibly gifted mm. and he was one of those people.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, you're right, mate. We might have to do another podcast based on him and his journey, his life. He yeah. seems like an amazing guy. Absolutely. Uh, Just to finish up in the time that we have, um, you mentioned Brian Gorgian and um, without touching on it, we know the success the Kings had in that 2000s decade, three straight championships. Um, Amazing team, an amazing roster. Um, Like your experience up in Brisbane, um, the ownership fell apart. Um, The club uh, no longer existed through 2009, 2010, I believe. Came back for the 2010, 2011 season number of years of trying to get back on the right track Um, and then you come in as general manager uh, 2015-2016 I believe or a bit after Um, what was the organisation like first of all the Kings when you arrived and um, yeah what led you to sort of take that step of um, yeah taking on the role of the Kings
1: well well, after I had finished with the Brisbane Bullets and I stayed in Brisbane I I worked for two organizations at that that well two different entities at that time one was the queensland government where i uh, became chief advisor to the sports minister uh for a period of time for a couple of years and 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 worked in politics and and helped in that area and the second was the brisbane broncos and
2: uh,
1: both with the broncos and in my role with the government as the sports advisor to the minister and previously when i'd run the bullets the the one gentleman that i probably interacted with most was harvey lister from mm. from uh, organization now called asm global but it was aeg and they are a venue operated through australia mm. they manage suncorp stadium perth entertainment center or now known as rac arena um and so on and, and cairns convention center brisbane burndall brisbane south bank a whole lot of them and harvey's a huge A player in the entertainment and venue space in Australia and Mm. I had dealt with him as I said at the three places at Brisbane that I had been the government Bullets and and Broncos Mm. and Harvey had always said to me that um, he felt like what we had done at the Bullets and we were obviously uh, tenants of his at those arenas in Brisbane Mm. during my Bullets days he he really felt that we had done a, a really good job running an NBL franchise. Mm. And, uh, and that was a tribute to all those people that were involved, mm. but he had always said to me, if I ever go into owning an NBL team again, cause he had actually owned the bullets way, way back a long, long time ago. Mm. But, uh, he said that if he ever went into team ownership again, he would give me a call because he felt like he'd like me to be involved in that. And that was humbling. And I thought it was a throwaway line. Mm. But years later, he, he decided he wanted to acquire the Sydney Kings because they were playing out of his arena at Kudos Bank Arena. Mm. Or, or sorry, to be to be accurate, they weren't yet playing out of Kudos Bank Arena. They were playing down the road at the State Sports Centre. That's right. Yeah. Uh, also within the Olympic Park precinct. Yeah. But he had a vision that perhaps he would pick them up and move them into the venue that he knew best because he was managing it at Kudos mm. Bank Arena. It was an AEG venue. Yeah. And, he, and he felt like it would be a good fit for the Kings to be at this arena and so he bought the Kings and he brought me in as managing director of the club and I actually went back to doing something that I hadn't done since the early days of the Bullets which was running both sides of the business, both the commercial side and the basketball side, which right. I don't do at Adelaide and I didn't do it, at, you know, and I didn't do in the latter days at the Bullets. I really liked to concentrate on just running the basketball but mm-hmm. I came in at the Kings as managing director and for the first two out of the, th- the three years that I was at the Kings, I ran both sides of the business and it was a tremendous period of time. And we had a, a major revamp to do at the Kings. Um, they had gone, I guess, to a smaller mode of operation out of a smaller arena. Mm. Um, you know, things had things had just been a little different for them compared to their, their heady days at the Sydney Entertainment Centre back back when they were there. And you'd mm. know about those days and th- th- that era had passed and, and mm. they needed a revamp and they, they needed more than just a new tin of paint on the front. They needed a, a real revamp. And Harvey is a marketing savant. He's a he's a guru when it comes to how to position and and, and, and really build a brand. Mm. He's very good at it. And so I was just lucky enough to be running his business for him and and really sharing in his vision and, and trying to institute the changes that he felt could be made and, and I took care of the recruiting and we obviously brought in Andrew Gaze as our coach and that had tremendous cut through in Sydney, which is not easy to do because mm. Sydney, the Sydney crowd's a tough one to, to get and, and mm. the Sydney media is a tough one to ha- to actually have notice you. And Andrew's um, a luminary figure in the game and uh, had immediate resonance in Sydney as a well-known entity, a, a person that everybody respected. And mm. and so we brought in Andrew and we really, you know, Kevin Liss, who we, we, we see mm. today, has just retired. Uh, he was my first recruit recruited him even before we had we installed a coach mm. uh, brought brought in newly as well before we'd even installed yeah. a coach and i i i brought a, I brought brad back from um spain where he'd been been playing so they were heady days they were great days we had a lot of work to do we we needed to fill a stadium much of what i did at sydney was about rebuilding the brand and about rebuilding the relevance of sydney Mm. And, of course, that built up to the crescendo, which was bringing Andrew Bogut back from, from the States um, and, and, and making the playoffs. And, and I remember it distinctly at the end of the three years that, that I was there, my last game there, we had um, I think it was 15,000 or so in the mm. arena uh, against Melbourne United. Unfortunately, we bowed out in the playoffs. But mm. I looked into the stands. There was 15,000 people there. Andrew Bogut was our starting centre. Andrew Gage was on the sidelines um we we had a genuinely very good team albeit we didn't play well in that particular series and i felt like yep in three years we've actually with 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 the support of the sydney people uh, we were humbled to have turned it around and mm. i felt like that's about as good as it's it's probably going to get other than if we had been able to win the championship yeah. and and i had always committed to three years and it was three years that andrew and i uh guys, that is had said we'd We'd, uh, we'd commit to Harvey Four, and it was three great years and mm. away we went. So it was a good time.
0: Absolutely, mate. You guys did a great job and built it to what it is today. Um, just as we finish up, obviously, with Adelaide now, a bit of controversy at the end of the season, end of last season, but uh, obviously put that in the past, moving forward now with a new coach and uh, starting to build that roster again. How's things looking for the upcoming season?
1: Well, you know, it, it's you're right. I mean, everything pre-COVID seems like a millennium away now, <laughs> and uh, there's some serious things that have happened that, that that probably put into perspective what actually happened at the end of the last season. But yeah. that was the end of a of a of an era, and we we thank those that that were part of that, um, you yeah. know, including the coaching staff, the players, some of some of whom are still with us, and many of whom mm. aren't. But um, you know, we 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 feel like that was. I mean, look, a few years ago, they were they were playing off for a, a championship, which Many observers believe they should have won against uh, Melbourne United and some unfortunate things happened there. So um, they're, they're, they, they had a, a successful era. Now it's up to us to try to uh, take that to the next level and do the best we can. And I've, I've always said this about any team that I've, been, that I've been lucky enough to be associated with, and that is that what you are essentially is a custodian of the brand and you're a custodian of the, of the history that's at those clubs. And Adelaide has a deep history, a rich history. The things that Phil Smythe did, the things that um, players and coaches before him, uh, right right the way through, that people probably don't think about much. But the Don Shipway era, the Mike Dunlap era, the Marty Clark era, all of those things contribute. Mm. Kenneth Cole era, you know, a great character in Adelaide history and, and a successful one. And all of those people contribute to the brand that is the Adelaide 36ers. And mm. that's why. Grant Kelly, our owner, uh, myself, um, Connor Henry coming in, Josh Giddy. What what we are is just simply today's version of the Adelaide 36ers, and we have a huge legacy to protect, to build on. And if you're successful, which which you look back to Sydney, what I just talked about a moment ago. All, all I was hoping is that we leave the place better than we found it. Yeah. And if we can somehow take Adelaide, which is already an incredibly strong brand and a great place, and if we can take the 36ers and somehow leave it better than we found it, then we'll have done our job. And we don't have that track record yet. I've just got there. Connor's just got there. Um, Grant's been there, but he believes there's unfinished business in building this team into, into something that we can really um, show the Adelaide and South Australian public that they they need to pile into the Adelaide Entertainment Center to see that is the job for us, mm. whilst not denigrating the brand, while whilst not ever doing anything other than paying respect to those that have gone before us and just take that thing to the next level. And I think with connor henry, he he is the right man to do that because he's respectful, and he he's he's about the future. He will draw on the history of the past, but only to assist the future. And, um, you know, we have a great opportunity. I think that the league with nine teams only is incredibly competitive. Mm. To, to make the playoffs in this league is a serious
2: achievement. Mm.
1: To go through the type of revamp that we're going through, bringing a 17-year-old kid like Josh Gideon to be a, a good part of the role means that it'll be a real challenge for us, but we feel like we're up for the challenge. Mm. We've got some huge announcements to make July 1st when we're allowed to actually into the free agency period, we've been working behind the scenes on some player announcements, cool. so we're we're excited about that. Mm. And um, you know, we think that whenever the season starts, whether that's late October, November, whatever it is, we think the Adelaide Entertainment Centre is going to be really buzzing, and uh, we're looking forward to it. So Adelaide is the next um the next mm. step in the journey um for, for me and for many that are
2: around me that have, that are
0: coming into this. Fantastic, mate. You're doing a great job, mate, and uh, could talk to you all day, um, but I uh, really appreciate your time today, mate, and uh, all the best for the upcoming season, whenever that is. No,
1: no problem <laughs> No, no problem at all. It'll start at some point, and uh, no, I appreciate the chance to have a chat. I
0: really appreciate it. No worries, Jeff. Awesome, mate. Thanks again for your time, buddy. All the best. No
2: problem. Talk to you later. See ya.
0: See you, mate. Bye.